last words are important and there are probably more people within this room uh, than I who can stand here and tell us the last words possibly of a loved one. When we look at famous last words, we can look throughout history and see some that are interesting, some that might even be funny, and others that are downright scary. The last words of Elvis Presley. He said, I'm going to the bathroom to read. Blues singer Betty, uh, Bessie Smith said, I'm going in the name of the Lord. The last word T.S. Eliot ever said was Valerie. Now, if you do some looking on that, I don't know who Valerie was. There's no mention of a Valerie ever in his life, but that seemed to be very important to him. R&B singer Johnny Ace said, Unfortunately, I'll show you this won't shoot. Composer Jean-Philippe Renew said, You are out of tune. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle said, You're wonderful. Pope Alexander VI, last words he ever said was, Wait a minute. Nostradamus said, Tomorrow at sunrise, I shall no longer be here. James R. Or w. Rogers said, Bring me a bulletproof vest. Frank Sinatra, last words, I'm losing it. Alexander the Great, last words, to the strong. Groucho Marx, last words, this is no way to live. Pistol Pete Maravich said, I feel great. Then there's a man by the name of Todd Beamer. You may or may not recognize his name. He was the leader of the group of men uh, when the plane went down uh, in the field going toward Camp David. Uh, he was responsible for saving a lot of lives that could have been lost had that plane on 9-11 reached its destiny. And he said, are you guys ready? Let's roll. Joan Crawford said this. Her final words were, don't you dare ask God to help me. What an unfortunate statement. Some of those we look at and we see the uh, the humor in those, and we see those men who were known as humorous. Some of those, we look at those and when we say, why would someone say that? And then we're brought to face-to-face -to -face with words from Joan Crawford of, don't you dare ask God to help me. That kind of puts a lot of our life into perspective. As you and I look at that, here is a woman who never believed in God, even on her final breath, would not believe in God. But there is a moment after that, day, after that breath. Well, I would guarantee you with everything I own, she believed in God then. While on the cross, our Lord made some statements. And we're going to take a, a portion of our time today to study those statements, and we cannot study those in depth. Uh, each of those could probably be one or two or multiple uh, weeks worth of sermons. We're going to look at those and see what God or what Jesus would be thinking of in those last final statements. It was not his supposition that he would die on that cross. 
It was a fact. Out of the history of those men and women found uh, crucified on the cross, there was not one who lived. When you made it to that point where they were nailing hands and feet onto that piece of wood, you knew you were going to die. And this is the point at which Jesus is face to face not only with the finality of God's plan, but the finality of his physical life. So in Luke chapter 23, the physician is inspired to write these words in verses 33 and 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What an interesting statement that is. As these men are, are affixing him to that cross, as he is being uh, mocked, and as he has been spit on, as he has had his beard plucked out, he says, Father, forgive them. Notice why. Even in his death, Jesus was concerned with how mankind would face the judge. He was concerned with how mankind would face the judge. And so his prayer was, forgive them. There were men there who may have never seen Jesus Christ before. There were men there who, those who were fixing him to that cross may have never even heard him speak. And they were just doing their job. And he prays for them and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't have any idea what they're doing. What a statement that is about these men and about those who are gathered around, about those who are cheering on his death, about those who are saying crucify him, that they don't even know what they're doing. They're trying to get rid of a pest. And in actuality, what they are doing is completing God's plan of salvation for us. Do you think they ever thought that? No, and it is the fact that Jesus is yet again correct when he says about them, they don't have a clue. They don't know what they're doing. It was Jesus who was concerned with how they would stand before God himself. And Jesus understood what God's plan was and knew that this was a necessary part of that. As I look at Jesus' last words of, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I look at myself and I ask myself this. Am I really concerned about how mankind will stand before the judge? Really? Am I, does, it, does it really matter to me? Does it matter to me that when I look outside of these who are gathered here and even some that are gathered here, that I see a, hu- a humanity that is lost? Does it matter? Does it matter that I see men and women who are going through their lives headed for a devil's hell and don't even know it? Does it concern me at all? Or do I think, well, if they'll come here, I'll teach them. Brethren, here are the facts. They're not going to come here unless you teach them. They're not going to come here until they know the importance of what is here. 
Not this building, not, not this fantastic air conditioning or these wonderful padded seats. They're not going to come here and look for that source of truth until they know that there is something called lies. Father, forgive them. He was concerned. Am I? In Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43, he looks over to his right and to his left. He sees two men who were on crosses beside him for a purpose. They were thieves. They were being crucified as a, as a punishment. One began to ride and rail on him, saying, if, if I be the Christ, take us down, and you too, but most especially us. The other on his left said, man, what is your problem? Do you not understand who this is in the middle? And do you not know who Jesus is? He makes that statement unto Christ and says, Remember me when thou comest in thy kingdom. And Jesus makes this statement, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Within this particular statement, I want you to see Jesus and the concern he had for one man. He, he moves his concern from all of humanity standing before the judge, and now his concern is for one man. That one affixed to a cross to his left. That one who, who should be there. That one by all intents and purposes underneath that law is guilty. And Jesus can't help. Because of his makeup, he can't help but but look at him and, and have pity on him. He can't help but, but look at him and, and, and want to help him. He can't help but look at him and, and have a desire that he, that he understand what's going on. Having this wrongdoer by his side, Jesus says to him, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And can you imagine the encouragement that that would give someone? Can you imagine that? We have men and women today who would profess to be followers of Christ who would say, I would like to be saved like that criminal found beside Jesus on that cross. There are only several problems with that. One of those is you're way too late in history. Two is that you're way too far west. We don't have the opportunity like one man out of the entire world did in Luke chapter 23. One person in the entire world. The one beside Jesus. The one that he has concern for. The one who said to him, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. That phrase, Lord, rememberest me, that, that's not one of those phrases that is just thrown around all willy-nilly within the uh, age and the, the time period of the cross. So that tells me a few things about this man. One, at least, at the very least, he has heard about Jesus and his mission on this earth. And it's very probable with the work of John the Baptist and the disciples around Galilee and Jerusalem, it's very possible that he was uh, convicted and baptized by one of those groups. So when he 
sees Jesus the Christ and he says, Lord, remember me when thou comest in thy kingdom. It could be very possible that he was a, a believer in Jesus the Christ. Here you have Jesus looking at one and having concern for one. Now, I may not be concerned with, with all of humanity that might be such a large number at 8 billion that I can't even wrap my mind around that. And so I look and I ask myself this. If I'm not concerned with all of humanity, am I at least concerned with, with one? If I were going to pick one I would be concerned with, here's the one I would start with. I'd start with me. I would make sure that, that I am following after what God said. And then I would make sure that my wife and my family are, are following after what God said. That's where I would start my concern. And, and after I had those things well in hand, hopefully, then you probably live in a neighborhood the same way we do. And I have a neighbor on my right hand and my left hand. That'd be a good place to start. Am I concerned with one? Notice what Jesus said. In John chapter 19 and verse number 25, through about verse number 27, as he is dying on that cross, he looks at a disciple, a future apostle, willing to write five books within the New Testament. And he said, Son, behold thy mother. And he looks at his dear mother in her face. It's one of the last statements he makes to her, and he says, Woman, behold thy son. A lot of times you and I in the South get kind of hung up on the phrase woman. Jesus used that a few times when he speaks to his mother. That's not a term of disrespect. That would, if you were in my mother's house, that would get you slapped quickly. But in Jesus' day, that's not that way. He's addressing her in a respectful way. Woman, mother, woman, behold thy son. You see, even in Jesus' death, he was concerned with his physical family. He was concerned with his mother. When Jesus gives the proper care of his mother over to a disciple, that lets me know something. One, he has a lot of faith and trust and love for John. Secondary, it lets me know that more than likely, Joseph is dead. More than likely, Joseph is not there anymore to take care of her needs. He's more than likely passed from this life into eternity. He did live a very hard life. He was a carpenter, and you and I think, because of where we live and, and when we live, we think of carpenter, and we think of uh, generally uh, wood-based carpentry. He would have been uh, very versatile in wood-based carpentry and also in, in stone masonry because of the building materials he had. His job would have been very tough. It would have taken a physical toll on his body and very likely would have been dead by now. And his concern was, what happens to my physical family when I leave here? You know, Jesus knows when he's attached to that cross, he knows he's dying. But he also knows there's someone who has a need. 
someone who needs something. Am I concerned about my family? Really? I, I have a, a young enough family where they all live with me and I, I know you all hate to hear this, I can kind of tell you what to do, right? That's, that's the good times. When, when you, are we? Yes, we are. And don't ever ask that question again. We are going, yes. But I am the youngest of three. I have an older sister who is uh, six years older than me. I have a slightly older sister who's two or three years older than me. I never can remember. And that sister's unfaithful. Am I concerned about her? The answer is yes. Do, do I want her to do what's right? Yes. And you all can echo those same sentiments about your family. Now what am I doing to make sure that she is following after God? Do I really have a concern? Or do I think, well, she grew up in the same house I did. Maybe, maybe she'll just get it. She's not going to just get it. As a matter of fact, the houses in which you grew up in, if, if you were never taught, you wouldn't just get it either. Am I concerned about my family the way Jesus was concerned about his family? Notice Matthew chapter 27, 46 and 47. There Jesus from the cross says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is interpre interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And if, if you were anything, if your brain works in any way like mine, there's a red flag that goes up. And you think, I have heard that somewhere before. Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is an interesting psalm found in that entire book of psalms. It is customary that it was the one that was used to alert everyone around the temple that it was time to go to worship. See, what I do when I, when I feel like it's time to go with the girls, I will look at my watch and I will go over to our stairwell and look down that stairwell and say, 30 minutes. Then I will go back and look at my watch and go back to that stairwell and say, 15 minutes. Until I say, it's time to go. All you little ducks, get in a row and get in the car. Let's go. I have a luxury they did not have. <laughs> and you have one too and you wear it on your watch. Or you wear it on your wrist and sometimes it's connected to your phone. So there was no set time and timepiece that the Jewish nation could look at and say, okay, it's time to go to the temple. When they began to hear this psalm being read out, and they began to hear everyone beginning to read along with this psalm, they knew that the worship service to God was about to begin. And it's interesting to me that Jesus says from that particular cross, those immortal words from Psalm 22 that begin that psalm, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Even in death, 
Jesus was concerned with calling everyone to God. He was, he was making a, an announcement, a, a broadcast, that mankind was being pulled ever closer to God through this death. It was not up until this death that mankind's sin would be forgiven. And at that point of death, the blood of Jesus Christ flowed forward for us and backward all the way to Adam. You read about that in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, that that old law being a shadow of good things to come will never make the comer thereon too perfect as they would remember those sins year after year after year. As a matter of fact, in verse 4 you'll read that it's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away the sin of man. Throughout history, those animals that were sacrificed were simply placeholders for the cross. Why? Because uh, the, the sacrifice was, was not enough. It was, it was inferior. Not until the blood of that innocent man was shed for the blood of guilty men was the nation known as the human race called to God. Am I concerned with calling everyone to God? I mean, it's, a, it's as simple as Yes or, or no? And sometimes I don't want to say what the truth is. What if I'm not really that concerned? Notice this next one. In John chapter 19 and verse number 30, Jesus, in, in one of the last words, he says, he, he pulls his body up from that cross and mutters through, through blood, it is finished. Three simple words and three powerful words. What is finished? Your life? Almost. What is finished? This spectacle on the cross? Just about. But more importantly, what Jesus is speaking of when he says it is finished is the very plan of God. That plan that, that was uh, started even before the world began. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 3. That it is finished. It is completed. All of the parts have been put into order the way God would have them to according to Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 and 5. And even in his death, Jesus Christ was concerned with completing God's will. What an interesting idea there. He's, he's concerned with completing the very will of God. Sometimes we ask ourselves, well, what if this happens or what if that happens? What if I'm in a wreck and I, I say this or I do that? I would like for you to take for a moment and look at the idea of your will and my will versus God's will. My will is very self-centered. Am I the only baby of a family here? Okay. How many of you as babies of the family and are those who live with them know that this is true? If you will do it for me, 
I will let you. Do y'all know that? Mm -hmm. My will is very self-serving. My will is very advantageous for me, and maybe not so much for you, but it really gets me ahead. My will is very um, pointed. How's it going to help me? What's it going to do for me? God's will is completely different. Let's take a moment here. In the New Testament, as it's written in Koine Greek, there are four words for the word, English word, love. For example, I say, I love a lemon icebox pie. I don't mean I like it. I mean I love it. And in the same breath, I might say, I love my wife. Is there any difference there? See, the, the four words in, in the Greek language give us nuances of, of the word love that, that we have to assume in the sentences in the English language. The first word is eros. That's where we get our English word erotic. It's, it's, it's the physical love between a man and a woman. That, that, uh, that weird feeling you get in your stomach the first time you see a very attractive person, you go, ooh, and you're trying to date, I'd like to date that person. That, that's that. The next word is storge. It's, it's a love between uh, a man and a woman who have been married who would like to satisfy each other's emotional needs. She would like this or she would like that. I don't know why, but, but because she likes this or that, let's go there. The third word is uh, phileo. Uh, we have a city in America named after this word, Philadelphia. It's called the city of... Brother love. If you can remember that, you can remember what phileo means. It means a love between siblings. That they don't know right now that they have, but as they grow up, they'll realize that they have it. They don't really like each other now, but they have to love each other, right? Then there's this fourth word called agape. This is God's will. This is not uh, any other type of love that we begin to uh, demonstrate to each other. This, this word agape means uh, I want the best for a person even if they will accept it or not. Agape is found when Jesus is on that cross because that sacrifice is made for all mankind whether they will accept the gift of salvation or not. It's available to everyone whether they want it or not. It's still available to them whether they choose to take it or not. So that's the difference between God's will and my will. God's will and love is looking out for others and the best for them, and mine is really just looking out for me. So when Jesus says, it is finished, he was concerned with God's will. And then I must ask myself, am I concerned with God's will or, or really what's going to help me out? Luke chapter 23 and verse number 46. Jesus says, Into thy hands I commend my spirit. You know, even in the death that Jesus was going through, his concern there is God himself. 
What an interesting statement. He looks after man. He looks after one man. He looks after his mother. He looks after, uh, after God's will. And the very last statement he makes is looking after God himself into your hands. I commend my spirit. I want you to see him on that cross here in Luke 23, verse number 46. Completely, he's physically empty. He has no more, no, nothing left. And we look at the outside a lot and we see the, the physical pains and the, the physical torment that he went through. But there is, a, there is an underlying principle that Jesus has been living with all of his life and not that he's physically empty, but that he's spiritually empty. There's nothing within his life that is his, but all that is in his life is God's. Now that's an interesting idea. Here's the reason why that's an interesting idea. You and I read John chapter 1 and verses 1 through 5 and then verse 14 and we see that Jesus was from the beginning and then in verse 14 that he put on a cloak of flesh and became a man. Jesus was, by all intents and purposes, walking around on this earth as the incarnate God, or God in the flesh. And we say, of course it's easy for him to empty self and become God, because he is God. Well, stop right there, because what you're looking at when you say the incarnate God, is you're only looking at God. He was 100% God. He still is 100% God. You look at him as he's walking around this earth, and he's 100% man. And he has the opportunity to have a will. He has an opportunity to make his own decisions. He has an opportunity as he's faced with temptations. He has an opportunity to sin. And every point in time that we read about in his life, he has emptied of himself and has put God's will right in there. Let me ask you a question. Are you empty? really empty. And it was after the point of into thy hands I commend my spirit that he passes from this life. He gives up the ghost. And an interesting event happens within the temple. There's a veil that is sectioning off the, most, the holiest place from, from the most holy place. The place where they kept that Ark of the Covenant. That place where they would make that sacrifice once a year on that mercy seat. And that veil that was covering that ripped. And you think, well, maybe somebody came by and just tore it. Maybe one of his disciples just came by and tore it as a, as a uh, means of, of signifying that the uh, sacrifice was already made. And I would tell you, no. That veil was torn from the top. Fifty-five feet in the air. Now, you may be better at basketball than I am. That's highly likely. But I don't think there's anybody in here who can jump 55 feet in the air from the top to the bottom. It was torn. There is no more need to section off God from anyone. There's no more need for it to be Jew and Gentile. There is only a need for it to be saved or lost because of the concern of Jesus Christ. He died there the most undignified death 
known to mankind, still died with dignity. When you die, are you going to beg for more time? Are you going to make the statement, don't you dare ask God to help me? Are you going to be ready? Here's the long and the short of everything I know. Time is fleeting and I don't know how much we have left. We could have 10 billion more years or 10 more minutes. I may have another 43 years to live on this earth. I may have another three minutes. I need to make sure that every possibility that I have that I am ready to meet my God. And if you have not put on Christ in baptism, that's what you need to do. That's how you become ready to meet your God. That's how you become His child. That's how when He sees you, He smiles. Through hearing and belief, through confession and repentance and baptism, you can be added to the church for which Jesus died. That plan that was completed in His death. And brother, sister, if you have already done those things and you find yourself out in the world, come back home. Don't let our Lord have died in vain. Come home now while we sing for your encouragement.